If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches us about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm your host, Jacob Winograd. No matter how many times I say that intro, I feel like I always stumble over one part of it. So I don't have a whole lot for you because this is a little bit of a longer episode, a little over an hour, and I'm trying to keep this intro short. I had an interview with Kyle Anzalone, who's been on the show before. I interviewed him back at Freedom Fest. And this time we dove into some of the current events of what's going on between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza, and the conflict that broke out back on the 7th of October, and sprinkled in a little bit of the history there. This is by no means a like comprehensive everything that's happened between 1948 and this current conflict. But I tried to kind of paint the broad strokes and kind of pull out the really key truths in the far history, recent history, and current events that are at play, kind of keep you more informed. And, you know, if you're someone who is undecided on this or is pro-Israel, I hope this will maybe challenge your perspective. And again, last thing I'll say is that the goal of what I do in opposing war is protecting innocent people is opposing the deaths of innocent people. Like I said in my last episode, what Hamas did is evil. All we are trying to say as libertarians, as anti-war activists, is that history didn't begin with that invasion. I think Kyle says it beautifully in this interview, actions have consequences. And so the mistreatment of the Palestinians and the politically motivated actions of the IDF, of the Israeli government, and of American foreign policy have all contributed towards this. In the same way, the conflict with Russia was provoked by a lot of other outside forces, including American foreign policy. The same is true for this one. And we need to hold everyone accountable and we need to be pushing everyone. We need to be pushing the American government, the Israeli government, the people living in Palestine and in the surrounding regions. We should always be, as Christians, pushing for peace and holding leaders accountable, praying to God for leaders to repent and pointing out where they're going wrong and what they are doing that is not in accordance to their decree. If they are not doing as much as they can, as much as it depends on them to live at peace, to promote peace, to exhaust every option for peace, and they are instead antagonizing and provoking conflict and acting corruptly, that needs to be brought to light. And that's what I hope I do in this conversation. I hope that it's informative. I hope that it get something out of it. So with that said, this is my conversation with Kyle Anselin. Kyle, how are you doing? Doing well, Jacob. Thank you for having me uh, back on your show today. I guess this is the first time we're recording remotely here. Right. Yes. So for those who listen to the show on a regular basis, you'll probably remember I interviewed Kyle maybe like a dozen episodes or so when I met Kyle actually for the first time at Freedom Fest in Memphis, Tennessee. And I interviewed him as well as Connor and Scott of the Libertarian Institute, they're live at the event, which uh, was pretty cool. It's always nice to meet people face-to-face. You see people on Twitter and stuff and interact, but it's a lot cooler when you get to sit down and talk. But yeah, this is your first time doing a full-fledged interviewer episode. We only got to kind of scratch the surface of stuff last time that you were on. And also, you didn't get much of a chance to introduce yourself. So I want to start out now that you are here for a proper episode with giving you the opportunity to take like three to five minutes and just introduce yourself more formally to the audience, explain your background, how you became a libertarian, and the work that you do for the Libertarian Institute. Yeah, so uh, my kind of political journey starts in high school. I was on the debate team. And so there, you know, we would debate all kinds of political issues. And I would always read pretty much everything people on both sides of the aisle were saying. It was the mainstream position that you were really arguing. And I certainly wasn't a libertarian yet. I was 
more of a Republican. And then in 2009, I found Ron Paul and just consumed all the libertarian content I could. And of course, then 2011, 2012, with his presidential run is really when I became a full-on excited libertarian that wanted to get involved in the movement, went to a couple of Ron Paul rallies. And one of the things that I was initially hesitant about when I became a libertarian was the foreign policy issue. And so I tried to really confront it, mainly to disprove the libertarians. And I found that they were absolutely right. And part of that was because I remember back to my high school days and reading what all the debate positions were back then. And so then uh, when you look four years to actually what was going on, you realize everything that you were arguing and saying that they're from the Republican or Democrat side was absolutely wrong. And this guy, Ron Paul, you could go back and watch his videos from 10, 15, 20 years ago, now 30 years ago, and see how this guy was absolutely right about everything the whole time. And so that's how I became a really excited libertarian and really drifted towards the foreign policy issue from there. I was a big fan of Tom Woods and Scott Horton back in the early 2010s. And uh, I started a blog through Tom Woods' Bluehost deal. Eventually, I kind of went from there to the Libertarian Institute, closed down my own blog once Scott Horton started up the Institute. I started there just posting my stuff on the blog. I guess I, I would maybe describe my role in the beginning as something of an intern. And then uh, just kind of slowly over time, started publishing my show through the Institute. Now I write articles for the Institute. And I'm also the opinion editor at antiwar.com. Awesome. Yeah, that's actually cool that you were in speech and debate. I did speech and debate as well. So it's always kind of fun to find other people who were part of that world. I did a little bit of Lincoln Douglas debate and a little bit of public forum. It was the other one I did with that's like two on two. So yeah, that is really useful for giving you the ability to learn both sides of an argument because you show up to those tournaments and stuff, you have to be able to prepare both sides because they switch it round to round. <laughs> so I think that also sets the stage where because you learn there's two arguments or two ways of interpreting facts, I think, although I was not a libertarian when I was in speech and debate either, I think that, and I'm wondering if you had the same experience, it was easier for me to recognize the role of propaganda in the media and from the state in current events and stuff, and then realizing, oh, there's propaganda and misinformation by the state and the ruling class today well, then how can we say that that hasn't been going throughout history? And how can we just assume everything we were taught in our history classes in public education is also correct? So that was definitely, I think, the seeds for a uh, sort of a red pill moment as I matured. So I feel like one of two things happen. Either people get extremely conditioned in that kind of language and scenario and then actually become worse and become the promoters of the propaganda, the people who just eat it up and spit it back out because that's kind of what they're good at and what they're used to. And then there's people who read through all of it, like me and you, and kind of go from there to become libertarians. I feel like almost all my friends from debate are kind of fall into one of those two camps where they're, you know, now public school teachers who just, you know, repeat whatever the current thing is to their students, or they're not maybe libertarians, but you would definitely call them like people who are very skeptical of the current thing, whether that's the war in Ukraine, the COVID vaccination. People fall into, I feel like, one of those two camps. And also, if you look at the people who engage in like the national forensic lead speech and debate kind of system, a huge number of congressmen and lawyers and high profile people come from that world. And so I feel like it turns some people into like absolute sociopaths and it helps other people to wake up to the truth. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, the National Forensics League. So I have a bunch of trophies from tournaments I did. And so my kids see that and it just says like NFL. They're like, Dad, you got NFL trophies? I was like, stop. It's not as cool as you think. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's cool. So when I had you on the last episode uh, at Freedom Fest, we talked a little bit about Ukraine and Russia. And although that's still something that is happening and going on and we should be paying attention to, now we're kind of having a buy one, get one free on wars going on in the world that America wants to get involved in. And so in the past time of this recording, about a week and a half ago, conflict broke out in Israel. Hamas set up an invasion. 
broke through. And now we've sparked that conversation up again, which seems even more divisive than the Russia-Ukraine stuff. And the most disappointing thing, of course, is that it seems to have made the anti-war sentiments on the right just completely evaporate to nothing. So a lot of my audience is Christian. Of course, a lot of them are libertarians, but there are some who are not libertarians or who are maybe libertarian curious, but that just haven't read all the stuff that I've tried to read. And so I wanted to have you on to kind of start going over some of the basics of the history and then talk about the dynamics at play going on right now in this conflict. I guess we'd have to start with a little bit of basic history, and we're not going to be able to cover everything. I mean, it would probably take hours to cover everything. Can we start with the switching of the narrative real quick? Because I think that's so important to point out, because doesn't it feel like we went like kind of that switch from COVID to Ukraine? Doesn't it feel like we kind of underwent that going from Ukraine to Israel now, where there was like a week in January, February of 2022, where everything was COVID and you were killing grandma if you weren't vaccinated and everybody has to wear a mask to Ukraine floods everywhere. And, you know, that's all that yeah. really matters. You know, the COVID stuff kind of falls away. And so it almost seems like something very similar happened when we had that Hamas attack on Gaza, which is really interesting to see because leading up to that, there was a major crisis in Ukraine. They were running out of aid, the $113 billion in aid that Congress had approved, the president to send to Ukraine had been almost depleted. They had to come up with what I think was an essentially a fraudulent accounting error to give themselves another $6 billion in aid to send to Ukraine. And they still haven't passed more aid to Ukraine. But what was a crisis two weeks ago is now not on anybody's radar. And so it's just so interesting how that happened. And I think, you know, to set the stage for this conversation, to realize how everybody's concern for Ukraine has suddenly shifted to concern for Israel uh, is just really interesting. No, that is a good point. And part of the problem is when you've been paying attention to things long enough, you immediately jump to all the worst case scenario, like skepticism was like, is it a false flag? Is this a setup? You know, Benjamin Netanyahu was certainly not doing well <laughs> politically. And again, it's like when you're talking to normies, it's, this can sound like conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat stuff. But it's not like it's without precedent to say that leaders sometimes when they know that they're not popular in their own country and their political aspirations are falling apart. Drumming up a good war is a good way to sometimes turn all that around. And so it's hard to sift through all the information and, and know what's true and what's not at this stage in the game. Because like, I've heard people say that they had warnings of a potential attack from Egypt or from our own intelligence agencies. And it's like, I don't know. Is that possible? I believe that is confirmed, by the way. Okay. That Egypt did give Israel a warning a few days before Egypt has made this out to be like they warned them of the attack. Who knows what the warning was? You know, if it was something as vague as Hamas was plotting to do something sometime soon, then it does seem a little less like there would have to be some Israeli attention to allow. But if they said, hey, Hamas is thinking about doing a major attack within the next couple of weeks, everybody should be concerned about maybe them using paragliders to fly over the prison fence and attack southern Israel. Well, then you know, that kind of fuels the speculation that this was somehow allowed by Tel Aviv a little bit more because it's unclear what level of detail they had at this point. But as you, you know, you mentioned there, and it's important, you should keep your mind open to this stuff because it has happened in the past and it could happen again. At the same time, you know, just because some Twitter account with the check mark tweets it out doesn't mean it's true. So one thing I'll bring up, which we can pivot to maybe adding a little bit more history to the conversation Another reason to be suspicious or at least open-minded to the idea that the Israeli government or Benjamin Netanyahu might have, even if he didn't go as far as to set the attack up, maybe he turned a blind eye to something or, you know, just took advantage of a situation that was unfolding already. Benjamin is already on record in the past basically being in support of Hamas being the power in the Gaza Strip because... I think his argument is basically that it makes it easier for Israel to oppose a two-state solution or giving the Palestinians complete rights as Israeli citizens. 
And so it's like, okay, so you're keeping a terrorist insurgency in power in that region rather than promoting another group that might be more open to peace because you don't want that. And so the motives are definitely there and definitely suspicious. And, you know, I think a lot of people are confused as to who Hamas is. Some people, you know, will say it's just a terrorist group, but other people will say, no, it's the legitimate government of the entire Gaza region because they were elected, right? Even though, like, the election happened in 2006 and there really hasn't been, like, another election since then, at least. I know there's been, like, local elections, but there's not been, like, a referendum on Hamas in the region since 2006. So, you know, I think the power before then was PLO and I think Fatah. So like what's a little bit, you know, again, like Reader's Digest of the history there in terms of how Hamas came into power and how that, you know, I guess leads to today in terms of why they're in position to stage this attack on Israel. So there's a lot of places where you could start this story. And if we had three hours, I would recommend a different guest who you know was really well-versed in this history. But just kind of from a little bit of an overview, in the 1948, you have the Nakba, which is when some Israeli militant groups drove a lot of Palestinians. I think the number ranges between a half a million and a million, where I think 750,000, close to that, but short of that, is probably the number that a lot of the expert sources go by. And a lot of those people were driven onto what is now the Gaza Strip. And so, you know, when we talk about Gaza and the people that live there, it's important to remember that 80% of those people are refugees from other areas of what they would consider Palestine, what if you, you know, Google it today and look at the map is called Israel, right? And so for the purpose, you know, of how I talk about it, I just, I call it what everybody's familiar with it. I know sometimes, you know, Palestinians will say it should be called Palestine. I understand the argument behind that, but I think for simplicity and understanding, you know, they were removed from other areas of Israel and now end up on the Gaza Strip. And so then, of course, a lot happens between now and 2005. But when you get to 2005, there's Israeli settlers living around the Gaza Strip and in the Gaza Strip. And then the Israeli government decides to remove those settlers and then place a basically a prison fence around the Gaza Strip. And so if you look at the Gaza Strip, it's about 140 square kilometers. It's almost a rectangle. I mean, if you know you zoom in, it's not quite a rectangle, but it's almost a rectangle located along the Mediterranean Sea in southern Israel. And it stretches from Egypt and into Israel. And so it does share a border with Egypt. And we could get into a little bit, you know, the politics around the Rafa border crossing and all that later in the show. But as far as the shared border with Israel and its marine time border, it is 100% controlled militarily by the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. And so starting in 2006, uh, Gaza becomes what is widely known, and human rights groups call it this, and it's an open-air prison, and they hold elections in this region. And the two main parties that people are voting for are Hamas and Fatah, and Hamas does win a plurality in that election. I think about 44, 45% of the vote, and uh, Fatah was at around 40%. However, you know, I don't understand this exactly, but however, the actual parliament, like legislators broke down, Hamas ended up with, I think, 75 and uh, Fatah with 40 something. So within the, the actual government, uh, Hamas had power. And so, you know, here's where we could get into Hamas is this group that is a political entity, and it also has a militia side to it that people will call things from terror groups to a militant group. I, I think militant group especially now is a little bit more accurate. But Hamas also serves as a political entity and has served as the governing body of the Gaza prison camp since 2007. Now, after Hamas won the election, the U.S. and Israel bat uh, Fatah in an uprising against Hamas, which Hamas won, and that really solidified their power over the Gaza Strip. And so from then on, Israel really viewed Hamas as an asset, as you mentioned in your lead up there, which sounds really confusing to a lot of people. However, the view from Tel Aviv, and particularly Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel, has been Hamas is this evil entity widely regarded in the West. And so if Hamas is in control of Gaza, then anything you do to Gaza 
well, then the Hamas fighters are just using the civilians as human shields. That's why the civilians are dying. That's why you don't have to negotiate with the people of Gaza. That's why you don't have to allow more aid in because they'll say, oh, it's going to go to Hamas and this is going to fuel Hamas terror attacks. And it also prevents any progress in the peace process. I I think it was one of Ariel Sharon's officials, but it could be a Netanyahu advisor that said that Hamas's status in Gaza puts the peace process in formaldehyde. So it prevents it from going in any direction and there's no pressure on Israel. You know, it's not a stinking rotten corpse. It's, you know, an embalmed corpse. And so there's not as much pressure on Israel to have to do anything about it for the people in Gaza because they'll just say, oh, well, you can't negotiate with terror groups like Hamas. And so that's been a, a great excuse. And it's also, to some extent, kept the Palestinians divided, although Palestinian activists and writers like Ramsey Baroud have argued in recent years that the feelings of the Palestinians that live in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, other areas of Israel are no longer as separated from Gaza as they were, say, 10 years or so ago because of the split between Hamas and Fatah. Gotcha. So to try to get some more clarity on this, you say that they're a political entity, but we also have read or, or heard in the news that Israel shut off water and electricity and stuff in the region. So seems to me that like if you're a governing body in a region, you should have autonomy over your region in terms of what happens. It's not like the uh, infamous in the Russia-Ukraine thing, you know, a pipeline being blown up or something by a Russia, quote unquote. This was basically Israel flipping a switch, you know, basically saying like no more water, no more electricity, things like that. So, you know, some people describe this almost as an apartheid state that basically the people in Gaza are like second-class citizens that don't have the full rights of Israeli citizens and they don't have their own autonomy. Although I guess Hamas has, I don't know what kind of political power they do have over the region. I mean, I guess they might solve their own local disputes, you know, maybe. I think that'd be the extent of it, but they're not like a sovereign nation or anything. So would that that be an accurate description of the dynamic there? So, yeah, there are plenty of human rights organizations that includes Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the Office of the UN, Secretary General, and Bet Talem, which is one of the leading Israeli human rights organizations, have all deemed Israel to be an apartheid state. Now, this mainly applies to the Palestinians that make up about 20% of the population of Israel proper, and then the millions of Palestinians that live in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, or uh, maybe in the Golan area that live under Israeli military occupation. Now, the situation in Gaza is even different. Now, these aren't occupied people, as you point out, that you know, if another country can literally turn off your water, then you're really not a sovereign state. And so, you know, to the extent that I call Hamas a political entity, they were elected wardens of the Gaza prison. And so, you know, as warden of the Gaza prison, you do get to decide who works in the kitchen and who cleans toilets and who gets different jobs. And so they do have some power. And I'm not sure to what effectiveness they actually govern Gaza. Of course, the situation there is pretty bleak. Even when you look out into the Mediterranean Sea, not only has Israel erected a seawall to divide its border with Gaza, but they also restrict Gazan uh, Palestinians leaving Gaza to fishing just a, a certain amount off of their coastline. So sometimes they stretch out to 15 kilometers, but usually it's limited to six or nine, which prevents them from doing a lot of deep sea fishing and stuff like that. So these are people who live under military occupation. Gaza is a part of Israel. Israel controls what happens in Gaza for the most part. And then Hamas gets to make you know minor decisions on the 2 million people and kind of for what's allowed into Gaza, they get to then make the decisions on what happens there. And just to understand the extent of the oppression of the people of Gaza, there are Israeli officials who have discussed that they put the people of Gaza on a diet. And so they calculate the number of people in Gaza. They calculate how much food they allow into Gaza. And then, you know, they made sure that that number stays high enough that people aren't starving to death. And it doesn't look like 
uh, the worst times in Somalia and Ethiopia, but at the same time that people don't have enough to eat. And so everybody's hungry and on the verge of starvation all the time. And so they call it putting them on a starvation diet. Another, I think, really powerful example is, let's say you're a child in Gaza. Uh, the healthcare system isn't very good there. Uh, there. There's just limited resources that they allow in. Israel, say, bars, just as an example, wheelchairs from coming in because they say those parts could be used in weapons or something like that. And so if you're a child in Gaza who has cancer, maybe you get permission from the Israeli government to travel to a hospital in East Jerusalem or in the West Bank to receive, you know, a better quality of care and treatment. But all these families report that they can't get approval from the Israeli government for any of the relatives to go and escort the child. And so a lot of times Israel won't get permits for adults to travel outside of Gaza, which is another huge issue. And then I, I guess one more major point on Gaza, because everybody really likes to hang Hamas as a, a noose around uh, the people of Gaza's nets and say, well, you voted for Hamas, they commit atrocities, and so now you're all stuck bearing the consequences. Half the population of Gaza is under the age of 18. And the last election there was in 2006. So just do some quick math in your head real quick and think if it's even possible that a majority of the people who live in Gaza were even alive or were able to support Hamas in that election, and they clearly weren't. Right. There's so many things that go into that narrative that just don't make sense the way that people on Twitter or, or X, as we should call it now, I guess, don't want to dead name Twitter or X. <laughs> but yeah, what, what you hear people say in the media or on social media is the, the Palestinians made their bed, they chose this leadership, this is what they wanted. And there's just so much of that that doesn't make sense to me. It's like, okay, this isn't a constitutional republic like we have in the United States, where they hold elections every two or four years, you know, for different positions and whatnot. They're not a sovereign nation. I also, I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but like, as much as I know about the way elections have worked in other countries, like in Ukraine and et cetera, where like there are elections, but they're not exactly, you know, the most fair and free and ethical elections, you know, like Russia's a good example too. It's like, yeah, Vladimir Putin been elected many times, <laughs> but we, we wouldn't compare that democracy to our democracy. But and even our democracy has come under a lot of attack recently. So that's the other element, which is like, okay, how much is democracy just a proxy for consent because clearly there's a lot of people in America that didn't consent to the current leadership, right? There's a lot of people who didn't vote. Did those people consent? You bring in those philosophical considerations into that. And then, yeah, it's like, okay, there haven't been elections in a long time. And we could even talk about the reality of that election where before in the lead up to the election, Fatah was more or less governing the region. And the Israeli government cut the amount of tax dollars that they were allowing Fatah to have to funnel around. And so cutting that aid that Fatah was funneling out made Fatah look like a worse governing body than they were. And so, you know, that's not necessarily to say that that swayed or shifted the election, but the vote was pretty narrow within a few percentages. And so you do have to wonder how much they were intentionally or not swayed the election by, you right. know, carrying out like those kind of policies. Right. And then like, even if we were going to be as charitable as possible and be like, you know what? They elected Hamas. They're the governing body to some extent, at least the militia body there. So they authorized that. It's like, okay, does that mean that I authorized the 500,000 dead Iraqi children in the 90s? Does that mean I authorized the Iraq War II? Does that mean I authorized selling weapons to Saudi Arabia to blow up however many thousands of innocent people in Yemen were killed? Does that mean uh, I authorized, you know what I mean? Like how much are we, even in a democracy, how much are you really responsible for what your elected leaders do? I just think that that's really weird thinking. But there's so much that goes into this equation. Another thing that goes into this, the Palestinians chose Hamas, if people will also say, we've tried giving them their own state before, and they refused it, right? So like Camp David comes up, and, and the unofficial agreement or something of that was supposed to be that Israel was going to offer some kind of state to Palestine. 
But again, the problem with the whole history of this conflict is that you get really different, like we were talking about at the beginning, you get really different explanations of the same events from multiple different sources. So as far as you can tell, I mean, what's the truth about like the Camp David Accords? Has Israel legitimately offered a fair deal to the Palestinians in the past to give them their own state? And have they refused it? What's the truth there? Yeah, so, you know, the cliche that's always used is the Palestinians never miss a chance to miss a chance or or something like that, where basically good deals keep getting offered to the Palestinians and they keep turning it down. They claim that the Palestinians were offered basically 22% of historic Palestine, which was supposed to be an excellent deal that for some reason, you know, they didn't decide to keep the Gaza Strip in the disconnected West Bank from each other, when in reality, Israel has really used the quote-unquote peace process to just kick the can down the road, right? So if you claim you're engaging in negotiations and things like that, then you could continue doing what you want inside of Israel as far as the international kind of community looks at it. And so I think that's, you know, really how the peace process has been used, where They've made deals, but they really haven't been honest in their deal making and have used that to just buy time. And certainly when you look at how it's played out on the ground, they've just used it to seize the West Bank little by little is what they've used the peace process for. And then to keep the Gazans in their own prison camp. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean, it it doesn't seem like if you're in Gaza, you have easy ways to leave Gaza. I mean, you have Egypt on one side, you have a body of water on another side, and then you have Israel on one side and walls and stuff. And then I think there was like a 24-hour or so warning that was given by the IDF saying like that people needed to evacuate the entirety of northern Gaza, uh, which like some people are like saying, oh, it's more than enough time. And I'm like, well, first of all, if we were speaking on a strictly moral level, I know a lot of people who would not be because because a foreign nation or a foreign entity says you need to leave your home. Like, okay, do you have to? And if you don't, are you forfeiting your life? Now, is that like maybe a wise decision in terms of self-preservation? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is like, in terms of what's deserved, if someone says, no, I'm I'm not leaving our home. Where are we going to go anyway? We're going to stay here. It's like, okay. And then their house or apartment building gets blown up. Like, did they deserve it? Like, I, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. But then too, it just doesn't seem like it's that simple to just get up and leave. Not to mention, I mean, there's reports of Hamas blocking off roads, stacking vehicles on top of each other, even in certain cases, holding people hostage, not letting them leave. So what's going on there in terms of the invasion and telling people to evacuate and whatnot? And what options do they really have in terms of trying to stay out of harm's way? I think you start off with one really important point there, which is a lot of people say, well, why don't the other Muslim countries just take in the Palestinians? As this kind of proves a couple things, which is one, they're saying, why should the Jews be saddled with the Muslims? They don't want them there, so they should go to a Muslim country. Two, they're saying that, see, there's something inherently wrong with the Palestinians. They're so bad, even the other Muslims don't want them. But they're also saying that the Palestinians need to get the hell out of Israel and leave, which, you know, I think is the real sticking point for a lot of the Palestinians, which is they don't want to leave Gaza because if they are driven out of Gaza, then they're completely driven out of their homeland. There's a lot of libertarians who will say that stuff and who also say that they will shoot a government employee who comes to take their guns. You know, I mean, they've long since taken the Palestinians' guns. These people are absolutely humiliated and oppressed and have no rights. And so if they're going to stand there and fight till their dying breath for their life and their family, you don't have to agree with what every last Palestinian or member of Hamas does, but at least some understanding of when you're humiliated and stripped of all of your rights, you either fight or cower, and some people are going to choose to fight in that situation. And so we have to understand that a lot of people in Palestine uh, don't want to leave. They don't want to be Jordanians. They don't want to be Egyptians. And who the hell wants to go and live in the Sinai Desert and be ruled by the general dictator Abdul Fattah al-Assisi, who came to power in a military coup and who arrests all of his political opposition? I mean, that's absolutely lunacy that the, the Palestinians will want to go live in some refugee camp in the Sinai, right? But that's what they're subjected to. That's their option. 
You're not blaming this on the consequences of American foreign policy, are you, Kyle? (laughs) Well, I mean, that does have so much to do with it. And that is another point when when you have to talk about Egypt, because people like to say, well, why don't the Egyptians just let all the Palestinians leave through the Rafah border crossing, which is where Gaza's border crossing is with Egypt. And well, a couple of problems is, is one, Israel has bombed the border crossing. And so that would certainly prevent people from leaving. But other problems are there's 2.3 million people in Gaza, right? And so if you think about how long it would take 1.1 million people, you're talking about the evacuation order for northern Gaza. There's 1.1 million people that live in that area. And so the idea that you would be able to get all those people without cars walking on roads that have been bombed through neighborhoods that have been bombed with people who are infirmed, uh, paraplegics, their children, you know, their one, two, three-year-olds. The idea that you would be able to have all those people flee to the south half of Gaza is just absurd. And all the international human rights groups said so. But further, when there was a convoy of people leaving, 70 people were killed by an Israeli airstrike following the evacuation order of the Israeli government. And so it's really not about evacuation. It's kind of the same thing as a peace process, like that short-term thing where you're saying, oh, we're having an evacuation order, but then you keep bombing like before. The evacuation order is just some fig leaf that you put out there to make it sound like you're not just massive slaughtering the civilians when you are. Yeah, it's just brutal. I mean, here in America... Let's say there was a natural disaster or, God forbid, some kind of weird circumstance that I was told to evacuate where I lived and I had to travel that distance. Not too hard for me, right? Like, you know, even if the highways were congested, the infrastructure and the travel lanes and stuff, like, they're intact. We're not living in a war-torn country. Compare that to Gaza, which, I mean, probably doesn't have the level of infrastructure that a first world Western country has anyway. Not everyone's going to have access to the same means of transportation. Any means of transportation. They're walking. Right, yeah. They don't have clean dr- <laughs> Israel turned off the water. They don't have drinking water. They don't have power. They don't have right. internet. Right. Israel had to drop flyers all over northern Gaza to let the people know to leave. Right. That was my other thing. Like you shut off the power and like if the people even had phones and the phones die, then you release leaflets. Like, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that people who would say all of this and be like, well, Israel's doing everything they can to avoid civilian deaths. It's like, I feel like you just pre-assumed the moral legitimacy of anything Israel does. I don't see any other way. Like if any other country behaved in this way, it would be blasted, right? It would be criticized. It's tough for me as a, you know, I'm a right-wing Christian. So a lot of the people who are running this sort of cover are my fellow, you know, right-wing evangelicals. And it's like, I, I just, it's very disturbing to me. It's like, I don't know why, and there's theological reasons, which I'm not getting into for this episode, but it's just like, I don't know why we have to suspend common sense, why we have to suspend morality and human decency just because Israel's the one doing it. And it's like, I don't hate Israel. Like, listen, like, I think the most likely outcome of whatever happens is that there is going to be a state called Israel. I don't see any way that's going to change. And I don't have a problem with that. I'm not like for it. You know, I wouldn't call for a Christian homeland. I wouldn't call for a white homeland. So I think having a Jewish homeland is kind of like, eh, that's not something I would advocate for. I don't really have a problem with anyone who wants to exercise in-group preference and make a homeland somewhere for themselves. I just ask that they do it peacefully. Like, and I ask that they be peaceful with their neighbors. And it just does not seem to me that the treatment of the Palestinians is in any way in concordance with what, not even just libertarian standards, it doesn't seem to be in concordance with like the regular standards that this very statist world we live in operates by. And people turn a blind eye to it. And it's just, it's incredibly frustrating. I don't know what drives it other than just kind of like, Uh, either bigotry for Muslims and hatred for the Palestinians or like this weird blind allegiance to Israel. I think a lot of it has to do with the weird blind allegiance to Israel. It's just so ingrained in American politics that everybody has to support Israel. And for so long, that was really a bipartisan thing. It's only more recently that some Democrats have started to turn on the issue. I want to mention a really important thing that happened in kind of the history of Gaza here. And that was in 2018. They held the Great March of Return. 
And that's when protesters in Gaza, men, women, children, walked to the prison fence of Gaza and were shot by Israeli snipers. And hundreds of people died in protests that they held every week where they were trying to walk to the prison fence, the edge of Gaza, and they were consistently shot by Israeli snipers. And this included people who weren't even within a few hundred meters of the border fence. This included children, medics who were both shot in the back, men in wheelchairs, paraplegics were shot and killed. And at the same time, the Israeli army was tweeting out that we know where every single bullet is going. And so for people who really press that the Palestinians aren't choosing a peaceful option, well, they put their hands up, they walked to the edge of the border fence, and they were mowed down. And so, you know, when that happens, it's really going to change the dynamics. Now, you know, when we look at what happened on October 7th and what Hamas did in Israel, there definitely are some pretty horrific atrocities that Hamas committed. And, you know, most of the people in Gaza are good God-fearing Muslims who don't believe in taking violence out, particularly not on women and children. To also add to that, it's not even all Muslims. There are also Jews and Christians who live in Gaza. Like there were actually like false reports of a Christian church being bombed. And then later that church was on Twitter, like, no, we're still here. But yeah, there's like in Northern Gaza, I think three or four Christian churches that are right there in the line of all this fire. So that's the other thing. Like it's not just, I mean, they're certainly the majority, but it's not just Muslims living in that region. Yeah, that's worth mentioning. A few thousand Christians live in Gaza as well. But yeah, I'm still waiting for more detailed reporting to come out. There's a lot of, I would call Twitter reporting on the level of atrocities that Hamas committed from beheading babies. And then, you know, if you listen to the narrative that Hamas is trying to put out, that they only went after military targets and maybe some civilians got in the way. When there are clear examples of that not being true, there are videos that even Hamas put out of them shooting at cars as they drove by. And so that was, you know, certainly killing civilians. I guess in the most generous interpretation that you could give Hamas is that there was just poorly trained young men who had lived under oppression their whole lives, given guns and power for the first time in their lives, and they just went absolutely wild. That doesn't mean that Hamas leadership isn't responsible for it. It just, you know, means that they didn't tell them to go out and slaughter innocent women and children, which may or may not be true. But certainly, uh, you know, innocent women and children died. The kidnapping of children, too, is... Yeah, the, the kidnapping of children, which is certainly horrific. I will say the kidnapping part was the one thing that didn't surprise me as much because that's the one kind of bit that political leverage that the people of Gaza and Hamas will sometimes have over Israel is if they get some Israeli hostages, they're able to say trade that for expanded fishing rights or more water or more food, uh, more open border crossings, more warp permits for people in Gaza to work in Israel. And so again, not to I'm not endorsing it or saying it's moral or anything like that, but there would be like a clear, this is how we're going to benefit off of doing this, where if you're talking about beheading a child or just, you know, killing a child in their crib, it's very hard to see, you know, why you would do that unless you're just an, an absolute savage. Now, there is the idea of terrorism and that, you know, you do something so horrific to provoke a more horrific overreaction from Israel. And certainly, in a sense, I do think that this is going to kind of break the status quo that Gaza and the Palestinians have been somewhat stuck in for the past couple decades, where there's really no forward momentum on the peace process. The situation in Gaza gets a little bit worse month by month, day by day, year by year. The people there suffer a little bit more. Unemployment goes up. The situation there gets a little bit worse. Israel seizes, you know, another couple square miles of the West Bank every few months. And so I do think to some extent, you know, this is going to really start to fracture that status quo. And one thing you mentioned in the beginning is that Netanyahu is a politician in trouble and politicians in trouble do like to go to war. But there is some polling that shows that the Israeli people do blame Netanyahu's failures for the Hamas attack. Not that they don't also blame Hamas and they also do also support bombing Gaza and, and collective punishment for the Hamas attack. But they also, you know, unlike the Americans on 9-11, who didn't blame George W. Bush for allowing the attack to happen and, 
you know, having this massive $500 billion security apparatus that couldn't stop a few men living in Afghanistan from plotting this attack. The Israeli people are really upset with Netanyahu here. And so this could bring about, not until the end of the conflict, of course, but this could bring about the downfall of Benjamin Netanyahu too. Yeah, that's certainly an aspect of the entire equation. Hey guys, really quick timeout. If you're enjoying this conversation, the back and forth and the information that we're talking about, it really helps this podcast and the Libertarian Christian Institute if you would consider making a donation. It could be just a one-time donation, just give the cost of like a cup of coffee at Starbucks or something, just give like three bucks, five dollars. As I've said before, if you want to become an LCI insider by giving a monthly contribution of $10 or more a month, that goes a long way towards giving us the ability to bring you conversations like the one you're listening to right now and giving us the ability to go out there and preach the truth of the gospel, to preach the truth of what's going on in the world, to do what this podcast is about, right? To be speaking out against war and empire and advancing the kingdom of God. That's what I strive to do. And if that's something that you want to support, your support financially is always appreciated. And even if you can't do that, if you just like this podcast, share it around with your friends on social media, things like that, that goes a long way towards helping us as well and what we're trying to accomplish. That's all I wanted to say. And with that, I'll let you get back to it. One thing I want to focus on here towards the end of this conversation is, again, we could have gone three hours trying to dissect every step of the history, but there's one part of this history between Israel and Palestine that's very familiar and it's played out a lot over the last century, which is something that I don't know who really coined the term, but I first heard it from Ron Paul is the idea of blowback. And I think this is something that non-libertarians don't understand. They always think that every conflict began the day it happened. My last episode, I talked about this. I was like, history didn't begin on September 11th, 2001. And it didn't begin on October 7th, 2023 either. Like, and I also like the, I think Scott Horton says it this way, you know, what the warmongers like to do is truncate the antecedents with all of these different conflicts. There has definitely been evil committed by Hamas. And I don't think that should be overlooked. And I think anyone of good conscience, you know, including the most anti-war libertarians, you know, we don't have any problem with condemning that and don't have any problem with saying, listen, if Israel wanted to take a small special ops force to go into Gaza and find these evil people, these terrorists, and kill them or bring them to justice, like, hey, like, Godspeed, do that. <laughs> I have no issue with that. The problem I have with this large-scale response and the war and everything they're doing is that it is only sowing the seeds for more violence down the road. Like the children, like you mentioned that it's a 50% of that population in Gaza are children. Well, the terrorists of today were at one point children in that region, and they also probably suffered under the foreign policy, or I don't know the right term, the treatment that the Israeli government does to the Palestinians, whether it's the wars that happened or whether it's the poor living conditions that Israel has kind of trapped the people living in that region into. And that builds up, right? Like whether it's, you know, even on the small scale, whether it's like being forced into a living situation that is extremely less than ideal, or whether it's witnessing people around you be killed by bombs going off, witnessing your family be killed by missiles dropping. And then also, when you're kept in that system of perpetual oppression, and then, you know, Israel, I would put it this way, I think Israel has certainly orchestrated Hamas to stay in power in that region, as well as, I, we didn't touch on this, but there's also history to how Israel kind of funded the creation of Hamas that we could have gone into. But it's like, what Israel has done is created the circumstances for these young children to grow up in an environment that does indoctrinate them into hating Israel and into and I don't think everyone it's tough like you never want to paint in broad strokes i would imagine a large part of the population of palestinians they don't probably don't love israel but they probably aren't like going around hating jews they probably aren't going around like 
I want to kill Jews, right? Like that's that's the propaganda that you see from people like Ben Shapiro and and the neocons right now. Like they they share all that stuff and act like that's all the Palestinians. It's like I don't think it's all the Palestinians, but it is some of them for sure. But like that's part of the problem is that like like I was listening to Ben Shapiro because it's you listen to your enemy, right? And I'm listening to him because I was like, I want to hear what he's saying rather than just the, the snippets. And he was like going through all these different, like, look at these horrible cartoons that they make. Look at these games that they play about killing Jews. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know that there's no one in America doing that, right? I mean, like, maybe there is, but like basically no one in America doing that, right? So even if that is a major problem, like, why is that? Like, do, do you just think, like, there, there was only two options that I can see. One you are actually bigoted towards Muslims or at least Palestinian Muslims and you just think, yes, Jew hatred is in their blood or something. Or Muslims are all closeted evil people. Even the ones here in America are, are closeted evil people. And listen, there's probably some evil Muslims. There's some evil Christians. So we can, you know, <laughs> we can balance all that out. Or probably more accurate to say there are people who call themselves Muslims and Christians who are evil. I would say they're probably not following their religion correctly. Uh, at least in my case, I would say that. The point of what I'm trying to get at is if you are creating the environment in which your actions of harming innocent people, your actions of keeping innocent people oppressed and trapped, all of that creates the environment for these extremists to recruit people into hatred of Israel, into hatred of the Jews, and into supporting terrorism. And all you're doing now in your response is sowing the seeds for this cycle to continue 10 years from now. Like, even if you quell this insurgency, even if you quell Hamas and you dominate that region, unless you're going to go in and kill, which is, listen, that's what Lindsey Graham wants, right? Level the entire place. Unless you're going to do that, you are sowing the seeds for this to happen again. And I don't know, it's just like, I don't understand how people don't understand that. And this is what Ron Paul talked about, like the idea of blowback. Like, hey, you know what? Bin Laden didn't hate America for our freedom. He hated us for a lot of reasons, one of which was like, hey, we killed 500,000 Iraqis by, you know, setting up a blockade in the 90s that that starved a bunch of people. Uh, you know, we we also threw, we, we, we planned coups in, in, in Iran and other regions. It's like we, what, what's, what's that libertarian saying? Like, you, you F around and you find out like, so people understand blowback there, but when it comes to like what nations do and governments do and, you know, American foreign policy or the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians, it's like, oh no, nothing that we're doing could possibly lead to these negative consequences down the road. It was just, we were protecting American interests or we were protecting Israeli interests. And then one day unprovoked, same narrative with Russia, right? One day unprovoked, they just decided we're going to invade and kill a bunch of people, which again, none of us are defending, but we got to stop pretending that history begins the day of each one of these attacks. So I don't know, right. that, that's my big thing. I, I'd like you to speak to that as well. So just real quick, if anybody wants to grab a pen and paper and you know, write down some future reading on the you know, issue of Hamas and the support it received from Israel and Netanyahu in particular, I got three articles I would recommend. The first is by Brian McGlinchey, who's a great libertarian. His substack is called Stark Realities. And uh, if you, you know, go check out a Substack. It's one of the, it's probably the most recent article uh, we reprinted at the Libertarian Institute. And uh, it's about the foundation of Hamas and Israel's hand in that. And then there's two articles that are more on the contemporary Israeli support for Hamas. One is by Aaron Mate, and that's on his Substack. I think it's just his name. And the other one is by Alice Speary. And she is the best writer at The Intercept. I, I usually don't recommend going to The Intercept, but in that case, this Alice Speary article is absolutely fantastic on the issue as well. And then one more article I would recommend reading is by Gideon Levy, and he writes at Haaretz, which is a major Israeli newspaper. It's you know like an, an Israeli Washington Post, right? And he writes in Haaretz, and, and the title of the article is something similar to you don't get to put 2 million people in prison and not have consequences for it. And he's basically, you know, without using the, the exact kind of libertarian language, explaining the blowback thing there. And so, you know, as you said, the context is so important. That's why it's important to talk about Israel being an apartheid state, the people of Gaza living in open air prison, the great march 
to return and all the suffering and humiliation the Palestinian people have suffered at the hands of the Israeli government. You also make another extremely important point there, which You know, as libertarians, we do this weird thing sometimes where we assign states rights that states really don't get. And so everybody will kind of go around repeating this propaganda mantra that Israel has a right to defend itself. So why would a state just inherently have a right to defend itself, especially from its own internal population? That's a really weird thing. Do the Saudis have a right to defend themselves against the Houthis in the midst of their massive bombing campaign of Yemen because the Houthis fire an unguided missile back over the border? Does that justify Saudi Arabia in defending themselves? You know, context is so important here. And, and, you know, the Israelis are constantly, the government of Tel Aviv is constantly, every single day, carrying out aggression against the Palestinian people. And so to just claim that Israel has a right to self-defense is absurd. Right. It's kind of like you if know, you were it's kind of like if you were in school and a bully's beating up a kid and then the teacher walks in at the moment where the kid after getting pummeled like throws one pathetic punch that like barely lands on like the bully's face and then the teacher's like you throw a punch you're suspended you're getting detention all that. It's like that's what we do with foreign policy. <laughs> right. And even if the kid throws a haymaker, I mean, if you start the fight, like you don't get this right to self-defense. Now, it's not that Israel, for whatever reason, doesn't get a right to self-defense If say Italy attacked Israel tomorrow. Certainly Israel would have a right to repel that attack. But terrorism is a crime and should be addressed as such. And that means, you know, making arrests, not carpet bombing an entire region. And, and, you know, the second point on saying that Israel has a right to self-defense, this is a particular propaganda line. And as soon as people started saying after the Hamas attack that Israel has a right to self-defense, everybody who knows anything about the situation in Israel knows that that was going to mean indiscriminate killing of Palestinian children in Gaza. And that's exactly what's happened. Over a thousand Palestinian children have been killed in the past 10 days by Israeli bombing, you know, using American bombs. And so, you know, is that self-defense? Because when you said Israel has a right to self-defense, that's what Israel was going to do with the self-defense that you were saying they had a right to. They were never just going to kill the Hamas members. That wasn't a question that was on anybody's mind. And look, the Israeli officials have even said that their goal is damage, not accuracy. You know, there there are Israeli officials calling for a second Nakba. And the first Nakba, of course, is the ethnic cleansing of Palestine originally and the establishment of the state of Israel. They're calling for another ethnic cleansing of Palestine. These are government officials openly saying this, that, you know, they're not just targeting Hamas, they're targeting the civilian population at large because they're all collectively guilty for the crimes of Hamas. And so, you know, this whole idea that, you know, we're going to give Israel this right to self-defense, just like, say, you, Jacob, would have as some intruder came and kicked down your door and tried to kill your family is just completely ridiculous and stupid. Yeah, self, and, self, and so. My right to self-defense would mean that if someone broke into my house and stole something or, like, you know, attacked one of my children or my wife, I would have a right to, in that moment, like, stop them. And let's say I failed and they got away. I'd have a right to either myself or through contracting some other third party seek that that person be you know brought up on charges be be arrested be prosecuted for that you know if it was theft restitution if it was killing or assault right but you that's don't a get to blow up their house with their family inside right i don't get to go be like okay you attacked my family so now i'm going to go kill your family it's like we can't say hamas is evil for killing innocent people and then say and so our response is to go to gaza and kill innocent people but <laughs> it's like where does the logic there and i think again i think the only way people get there is they engage in this really gross collectivism i think and i don't like listen i don't like using the word bigotry because the left has really hijacked and poisoned that word but that is the word that comes to mind like, listen if you're going to view a whole group of people and basically say they're scum and they need destroyed if there's ever a point in time where the word bigotry should have been used to describe a mentality, that's probably it. Like, and I'm the person who hates using that word. But like, if you think the Palestinians are these cockroaches, they're the scum of the earth, and they, they need destroyed, or at the very least, it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't 
intentionally kill any of them, but we're going to destroy Hamas by any means necessary. And you know what? If Hamas is, this is one line I hate, Hamas is using human shields. Well, that's a war crime. And so what? Should we just do nothing? Let Hamas get away with it? No, it's just, there's going to be innocent casualties. And that's Hamas's fault. I'm like, hold on. Yes, it is Hamas's fault if they use human shields. But if you pull the trigger, you're also to blame. It's like if a, if, if a bank robber takes a hostage and then a police officer shoots the hostage, yeah, the bank robber's still responsible for that death, but so is the police officer. You know what I mean? It's like, this isn't hard. <laughs> it, it's just like people suspend morality for these situations. And I, it's, just, it's just so frustrating. Right, and, and it's just... Again, I think a lot of it's kind of propaganda, too, because where is the Israeli defense ministry? It's in downtown Tel Aviv. And so what? Does that make all the citizens of Tel Aviv human shields? Because when Hamas launches rockets at the defense ministry, they hit apartment buildings around Tel Aviv. I I mean, it's the same logic, a lot of it. Now, you know, if, if there is a specific situation where Hamas is keeping Gazans hostage or something, that that is a little bit more egregious. But a lot of times what they're talking about is just the fact that 2.3 million people are crammed into this tiny area, one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Who's responsible for that? Right. And so there's people (laughs) that a Hamas member lives in the same building as another, you know, 100 families. And so Israel says that the other 100 families are human shields for that Hamas member. No, it's just... You know, there, there's not a lot of places to live in Gaza. And so people live all over the place and not everybody is a human shield. So anyways, you had a really good rant there then. I hope I kind of touched on all the questions that you asked me there. I try to get to most of it. But if I make a recommendation, uh, another one is Scott Horton talked to Daryl. Uh, what's Daryl's last name? It's Martyr Maid is the name of his podcast, Daryl Cooper. And uh, it's a recent episode of the Scott Horton Show. You know, Daryl's a former military vet, and so he gives a little bit more of that perspective. It's a really fantastic conversation on the issue, and I think they touch on a little bit more of the early stuff than we did in this conversation. Yeah. No, I, I think, I don't know, sometimes I feel like the only thing you can do is go on Twitter and just, like, Ron Paul was right, Ron Paul was right, just kind of, like, on repeat, because it's just, we haven't learned, we haven't learned our, our lesson, but, I mean, that's why we have a job to do. It's like, we have to raise awareness of what's going on. We have to cut through the propaganda. Like we talked about when I had you on at Freedom Fest, it's like it can sometimes be overwhelming because we feel we can feel like we're such a minority. But I think the way I've tried to encourage people that listen, I don't think that we're a minority. I just think that people are reacting to bad information. So there are enough of us that if we are all out there trying to say the truth, we can make some noise. I mean, I've had impacts, I mean, and it's maybe small in the grand scheme of things, but I've had impacts of people in my family, in my church even. Like I've had conversations with my pastor and elders at my church and they're not ANCAP libertarians, but they're like, yeah, you know what? You have a point on this conflict with with Israel and Palestine. And yeah, Israel was invaded by Hamas and you know, they feel justified in responding. But you know what? Palestine feels the same way. They feel like they're living under an oppressive regime and they have to fight back. Doesn't mean I support Hamas killing innocent civilians, but it's, again, it's predictable blowback and people need to learn that. They need, they need to learn, as you said, actions have consequences. So Kyle, I really appreciate you coming on. Again, we could go on this subject for, for hours, but I think this was a good first pass over a little bit of the history and the truth of what's going on right now. Of course, as the situation continues to unfold and develop, uh, probably be having you and more of your co-patriots over at the Libertarian Institute on to kind of keep us informed as more things happen and develop. But of course, A, you mentioned a few articles back a few minutes ago. Please link share like an email with me or something, anything you have related to this from the Libertarian Institute or from other sources that you think is relevant, I will flood the show notes section with anything that you think is relevant to what we talked about. And of course, before we go here, any closing thoughts, and then please plug your content and the Libertarian Institute, because I highly recommend anyone listening to my podcast in this conversation who wants to learn more. Best place to do it is Libertarian Institute, antiwar.com. So with that, I'll give you the last word. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much we didn't get to touch on, like the fact that, you know, this could spark a wider regional war uh, with Hezbollah and other oh, and, and uh, we totally, Shia militants getting along. But, I mean, this is so important. One thing we totally forgot about is that this could spark a conflict with Iran, which is something that the neocons have been dreaming about for decades. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, we'll, we'll definitely be having you back on at some point as more of this unfolds and we can dive more into a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So anyways, thank you so much. If you want to keep up on it, uh, I always talk about it on my show, Conflicts of Interest, all the war news happening every day. Uh, check out antiwar.com. The news section there is mainly Dave DeCamp, uh, myself and Connor Freeman, also right for the Libertarian Institute that gets posted at antiwar.com. And then I put together the viewpoint section of antiwar.com every day. And so that's going to be the spotlight article and the you know four articles that appear in the viewpoint section above it. And right now it's heavy on Israel. So you know, if you're like, oh, that guy has some interesting things to say, I wonder where he learns his stuff from. Read those viewpoint articles because that's where I get a lot of my information. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kyle, again for coming on and for the work that you guys do. It's very important. And uh, thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.